On the 27th of October 2020, this year, there was a debate held at a website on YouTube called The Gospel Truth. It was by Messrs. Kurt Jaros and Douglas Wilson. Jaros is J-A-R-O-S. The topic was, Does God Decree All Evil? Now, this debate was more like a friendly dialogue or even a love fest because it seems like the two uh, the, the two commentators were more in agreement than not uh, on many issues. One of the problems I saw was that they rarely used Scripture. They rarely cited Scripture. But uh, one example of this is highlighted in a comment at the one hour, 40 minute mark. And if you listen there, one hour, 40 minutes for a couple of minutes, you'll see that these two debaters are actually in agreement that Esau is saved. Esau, yes, Jacob's brother Esau in the book of Genesis, he is saved. Now, that is a stunning a stunning conclusion to reach for both of these debaters because on the one hand, Wilson claims to be a Calvinist and Jeros is uh, an Arminian. Now, we would expect something like that from an Armenian, but from a Calvinist, it's stunning. It's so stunning that it shows the, the paucity and the lack of careful thought and reliability of Doug Wilson to make such a claim. There was no debate, no argument, one way or the other. They both agreed on this. They did not attack each other, but were in full agreement. This is one example of their love fest. Well, I have a friend whose name is Caleb, and Caleb actually wrote a letter to the editor. And let me read to you uh, excerpts from this letter. He contacts Doug Wilson so that Doug can clarify what exactly he meant. And he says, at about, this is the friend, the letter to the editor, Caleb, at about the one hour 40 minute to one hour 42 mark or so, you said you think it's possible that Esau was or is saved. I was wondering if you could lay out your reasoning for that and also as a follow-up, your follow-up, explain your understanding the following passages. It seems clear to me that the authors are showing Esau to have been reprobate, predestined to hell, non-elect in opposition to elect Jacob, however you want to say it. Then he cites two passages of Scripture. One is Hebrews twelve seventeen, both from the NASB. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Hebrews twelve seventeen, And also Romans nine ten to 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 10-13, signed Caleb. Well, thankfully, Doug Wilson responds, and though it's nice to get a response, his response is woefully lacking. For one, I notice in this response, he does not cite a single scripture. He vaguely refers to scriptural examples and names, but he doesn't cite anything or anyone 
in context. In fact, it reminds me of talking to a Catholic, a Muslim, a Mormon, or any other false religionist. It reminds me of that. And so let me read this answer and make my comments accordingly. Doug responds, Caleb, thanks. That remark was in passing, so I don't think the rest of the debate would help, at least on that question. The issue is whether someone who is serving as a type of judgment can himself individually escape that judgment. An obvious example would be Adam. He is the old man, but can the old man become new? That's the first part of the answer. Can someone who is a type of judgment himself individually escape that judgment? And he uses the example of Adam. How, can the old man become new? Well, firstly, when he cites Adam, yes, Adam was created perfect. He fell into sin. But what he fails to see is that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, we have indications here of Adam's conversion or his salvation, that he did repent because of these verses. Genesis three twenty. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Firstly, in verse 20, her name is Eve, which means living or life. Living or life. Why would he give her that name? Not just merely because of physical life, but because of spiritual life. And not only is, is that the case, but in verse 20, she is the mother of all living. Not merely living physically, but living spiritually. So she becomes the prototype, the example of all female believers, starting with Eve. But it also includes Adam. For Adam to actually say that, he must have had faith himself. Then verse 21 includes both of them. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why did God kill an animal? Why did God do so? He did it because he was sacrificing um, an animal or animals for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. Not because the animal saves them, but the animal and the clothing is a representation of the covering God gives in salvation anticipating the coming of Christ, as it is in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would be the perfect sacrifice which God preached to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve believed. And that is represented in them being clothed with garments of skin by God himself. They sinned, but God provides salvation. God initiates the provision for salvation. This is clear. So Adam is obviously not merely an example of judgment. He's an example of perfection, sin, and then conversion or release from judgment. He has been justified because of faith in Christ. Further, when he says he is the old man, but can the old man become new? Well, why not? Isn't that what the whole gospel is, the old man becomes new, that, that which was lost becomes saved. The Son of Man came, came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke nineteen ten. Are we not new creatures in Christ? Behold, all things passed away. Uh, all things passed away. Behold, all things have become new, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. 
Is that not what conversion is all about? So why is it so uh, incredulous with Adam or anybody else who is under judgment? This does not, of course, mean that everyone under judgment but becomes converted, becomes a new man. But why is Adam an example of someone who did not become a new man? As though new creatures do not come about by the work of God. Secondly, he says, or further he says, or consider, quoting Doug Wilson, or consider the Israelites who died in the wilderness. They were all a type of judgment. But could any of them be saved? They were all a type of judgment. Could any of them be saved? Well, of course, they could be saved if they put their faith in Christ. Yes, they were a type of judgment. Hebrews chapters 3 to 4 makes that quite clear. Psalm 78 makes it clear. Psalm 106 makes it clear. Even the narratives of the books of Exodus and Numbers, especially Numbers 14, makes it clear that they were judged. But that doesn't mean every single one of them was judged and punished. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Joshua, and Caleb are prime examples of individuals who were in the wilderness but were saved. So citing the Israelites does not help his argument. Further, Esau himself, quoting Doug Wilson, he says, The blessing that Esau could not regain was the messianic blessing. And Malachi is talking about the nation of Edom, not Esau himself, necessarily. My thinking is that Jacob and Esau are reconciled at the end of the story, and Esau is quite magnanimous. End of quote. Now, in particular, Esau, the blessing that Esau could not regain was the messianic blessing, he says. Really? Only the line of the Messiah, only the line of Christ, that was the only thing that Esau lost? No, that's not the only thing he lost. Uh, We'll see in a moment from Hebrews 12 that that's not the only thing he lost. And actually, it was never his to obtain in the first place because of Genesis 25, 23. The older shall serve the younger. And in Malachi 1, 1, 1 and 1, 2, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the Messianic blessing was never his in the first place, but it's not that which he lost. Further, uh, Malachi. Malachi is talking about the nation of Edom, not Esau himself necessarily. Actually, Malachi is talking about Esau himself and the nation. He's talking about both, just as Malachi is talking about both Jacob and the nation that came from him, the nation of Israel, also known as Jacob as a nation, depending on where you are reading in the prophets. So, Look, for example, at Malachi chapter 1, Malachi 1, 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. 
And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And the men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, may the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. Well, it's quite clear in verses 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, that we are dealing with Jacob and Esau as individuals. We are, because it says in verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother? We're not talking about nations at that point. We're talking about them as men, as individuals. And the individuals, it says in verse 2, I loved, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Jacob and Esau are usual names for the patriarchs, the two men. Their nations are sometimes called Jacob and Esau, but more often Israel and Edom. This is why in Malachi 1, 3 to 5, he turns his attention to the nation. He says, I have hated Esau and I have made his Mountains, that's where his nation resides, Mount Seir, south of the land of Israel and Judah, south and southeast. I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, Edom, that's the typical name for the nation. We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. See the we? The nation is speaking there. Malachi's prophecy here is both for Jacob and the nation of Israel and against Esau, the individual, the man, and his nation. Malachi, therefore, is not only or primarily talking about the nations from both of these men. He is also talking about the salvation of Jacob and the salvation of the man Esau. Further, he says that, quote, my thinking is that Jacob and Esau are reconciled at the end of the story and Esau is quite magnanimous. Yes, it is true that by the time we reach Genesis chapter 33, that Esau is magnanimous and they are reconciled. Reconciled in that Jacob and Esau are not at war. Esau is not trying to murder his brother anymore. He's been gone long enough. It had been 20 years. And so Esau basically forgets or it's not such a concern to him to retaliate and murder his brother Jacob for stealing the blessing. That is true. But it's also true that Pharaoh, Pharaoh confesses his sin. It's also true that Pharaoh confesses his sin to Moses in Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 27, 9, 27. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to him, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This is in chapter 9, but in chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, he doesn't let them go until finally he does after the 10th plague. 
But even then, he chases them to the Red Sea. So was this true repentance? No. Look, for example, Moses in this same chapter, Exodus chapter 9, doesn't believe in what Pharaoh is saying, that it's true repentance. He says in 9.30, Exodus 9.30, Moses to Pharaoh, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. This shows that a superficial reading of Exodus might lead one to conclude that Pharaoh repented, but there's no way he repented. And Moses actually tells Pharaoh to his face that he did not repent. Another example would be Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. He was a thief. He pilfered from the money box, which is stated in John 12, verse 6. But Judas also, after he betrayed Christ, it says in Matthew 27, Matthew 27, 3 to 5, that he felt sorrow, it says. Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 27, 3 to 5. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. He returns the 30 pieces of silver and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then verse uh, 3 also says he felt remorse. He felt remorse. So did he repent? No. He hanged himself. He committed self-murder or suicide. He did not repent, but he committed suicide. And though he acknowledged what he did was wrong, he betrayed innocent blood, he felt remorse, he wanted to return the money, it's still not true repentance. We know that to be the case because Christ says of him in Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And further, we have in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 12. Seventeen twelve says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Perished. It's in the past tense. Though the perishing had not yet happened, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled which means Judas Iscariot. It's clear if you read John, the book of John carefully, all these references to Judas Iscariot make him an unbeliever who went to hell. He was a son of the devil and he went to hell. A superficial reading, however, of Judas would make one conclude that Judas was saved. So back to Esau. Esau in Genesis 33 does not actually say anything about repenting. He does not call upon the name of the Lord. He does not speak of the Lord. He does not speak of the Lord as his Lord. None of that is there. Yes, there is reconciliation physically, but there is no spiritual reconciliation between Esau and God and Esau and Jacob. Now, in Doug Wilson's response, what is glaring is that he does not cite any scripture in context, number one. And number two, Caleb, the inquirer, 
he asked him specifically about Hebrews 12 and Romans 9. And Doug Wilson's answer does not even include those two passages. Is Doug Wilson a better interpreter than the apostles of the New Testament? Why did he ignore them? In Hebrews 12, it actually says the following. We'll read from verse 15, Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." The example given of someone who comes short of the grace of God, someone who has a root of bitterness springing up causing trouble, and defiled, immoral, and even godless, is Esau. Is Esau. And he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. Yes, he was sorrowful for what he lost, but he never repented. If he did not repent, he is condemned. He is not saved, but condemned. Why did Doug Wilson ignore the apostle in Hebrews 12? Is Doug a better interpreter of Scripture, of the Old Testament, the Scripture of the Old Testament? Or let's take even Romans 9. Now, this corruption of Romans 9 is not a new one, at least to my ears. A few years ago, when I was a colleague of Malcolm Yarnell at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and another professor named uh, Tony Ma'aluf, who taught Islam, Islamic studies there. Yarnell taught theology, Ma'aluf taught Islam and missions. Well, one day in chapel, Malcolm Yarnell preached Romans 9 and he concluded that Pharaoh and Esau are saved. And Tony Malouf walks into the room where I was. I was alone in the room, uh, in the faculty room, and he comes with a smile on his face. He's very giddy, and I asked him what was going on. He said, well, were you in chapel? I said, yes, I was. He said, did you hear what Malcolm said? I said, yeah. He said, that's good. Uh, I believe like him that Pharaoh and Esau are saved. That was several years ago. So, and I know clearly that both of them are staunch Arminians and staunch anti-Calvinists. Ma'aluf has now passed away, but when he was alive, he rejected, both of them, Malcolm Yarnell and Tony Ma'aluf, rejected so- the sovereignty of God, predestination, as defined by the Bible. Not as defined by Arminians, but as defined by Scripture. They rejected it. Well, This is very reminiscent. Doug Wilson is very reminiscent of that. He ignored completely any comment on Romans 9, 10 to 13, where the Apostle Paul clearly teaches that this is about individual salvation, not national salvation, not national election, not Israel, the nation, as the chosen race for the Christ to be born into the world. That has nothing to do with Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 10 to 13 clearly explains that before they were able to do any work, God made it clear to Rebekah and Isaac 
that he loved Jacob and hated Esau, that the older will serve the younger, the older being Esau of the two twins. And this service was not a physical service, but a spiritual service, a spiritual service that the older would serve the younger. And that played itself out in the lifetime of both of these patriarchs. God called Jacob, he loved Jacob, but he did not call, effectually call Esau. Paul is very clear. Now, to reiterate that chapter 9 of Romans is about individual salvation, in verses 1 to 5 of the chapter, why is it, if we're talking about national selection or national uh, election, that he says that he wishes that he could be accursed, verse 3, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. To be accursed means to be condemned, to go to hell. That's a matter of salvation. Then in verses 6 to 9, he uses the example of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, as opposed to uh, Ishmael, and by implication, Hagar. Ishmael and Hagar as opposed to Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. Those are individuals. In the case of Jacob and Esau, we saw we're dealing with individuals. Even Isaac and Rebekah are individuals. In chapter 9, 14 to 18, we're dealing with Pharaoh and Moses. They are individuals. Moses was obviously saved, but Pharaoh not saved. And only this interpretation would raise the objections of verse, verses 14 and 19 about God being unjust in verse 14 or in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? This is when the apostle has to throw it back onto the lap of the objection and the objector to say, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? If this were merely a matter of national election, there would not be this kind of objection and response from the apostle. There would not be that at all. Then even in verse 24, he says, he's talking about the called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, individuals from among Jews and Gentiles. He cites Hosea, to prove that people who were not called my people will be called my people and also sons of the living God, verses 25 to 26. Verses 27 to 29, he cites Isaiah. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. He's talking about the election and preservation of the elect, the remnant, the spiritual remnant in Israel. Then verses 30 to 33, he's explaining how Gentiles attained righteousness, but Israel, the Jews, did not attain righteousness. He's obviously talking about salvation because the Gentiles believed in Christ but the Jews refused to believe in Christ, speaking of them as a nation, not absolutely and exclusively that no Jew believed, but as a nation, they did not believe. 
Then we return to the same subject in chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The whole letter of Romans is about salvation, individual salvation. Certainly, the election of the nation of Israel is a factor, but that's not the thrust, that's not the center point or central point in the whole letter to the Romans. It's about the gospel and how to be saved. So, Doug Wilson, he has sided actually with all the others who barely superficially cite scripture and distort it, just like all the false religionists distort scripture. So I have a question for Doug Wilson. If Esau is saved and Pharaoh is saved, then is Judas Iscariot saved? Is Joseph Stalin saved? Is Adolf Hitler saved? Is Barack Hussein Obama saved? Is everybody basically saved? Why in the world would you hold such a position except to tickle ears and gain a following?